You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is full of inexhaustible goodness and instruction for us. So we pray, Holy Spirit, in these next several minutes that you would clear all unnecessary distractions away from our minds, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of Christ, that you would give us hearts to receive the instruction of your word this morning, that we would be convicted if We need to be that we would be comforted and that we would sense greatly our commission to go and make disciples. Father, I also want to pray this morning for the family of a a dear servant of yours. There are choice servants that you have given to your church that have a profound impact on thousands and thousands of people. They do this through writing and speaking and teaching. So even this morning as I was preparing to speak, I I thought about the influence of David Paulison. And my heart was filled with gratitude for his faithful ministry. And so this morning as we gather in in this place, we just want to lift up his family. We want to ask you to comfort his wife and children and grandchildren. And we want to praise you. We want to praise you for servants like David who faithfully serve the church and do so in ways that It's hard for us even to express. So thank you for your servant. And thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. There is something interesting that sometimes happens with children. And maybe it's just my children. But one of them will be offered something that they decline. But then as soon as they see that one of their siblings wants what they have declined, they all of a sudden want it. You see, they they didn't want what they were offered, but they also didn't want their arch nemesis brother or sister to have it. Now, I think we all know this doesn't just happen with children. In fact, in our text this morning, we will see this kind of childish and immature response by grown-ups, and yet the context of it will be far more devastating than a piece of cake or a popsicle or something you might offer one of your children at home. Before we dig into our text this morning, I want to review a little bit so we understand the context of our passage. Chapter 13 opened up with the commissioning of Barnabas and Saul. Darren so helpfully pointed out that the church in Antioch began with people who fled Jerusalem after the murder of Stephen. 
that murder was sanctioned by Saul. He admitted that it pleased him. And now what do we find here in chapter 13? Some of the very same people who fled Jerusalem, having witnessed the wickedness of Saul, are now commissioning him to go out as a witness for Jesus. So friends, at the very least, you ought to think about that and encounter that in the text and think this is amazing grace. The gospel has power to transform. Once they were commissioned, Saul, now Paul, set out on his first missionary journey along with Barnabas. And these two servants of Jesus are taking the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. As they travel, their primary activities are interpreting the scriptures and explaining the significance of Jesus. And they're faithfully doing this by instructing new believers, but they're also facing along the way tremendous opposition. In spite of great difficulty, they will not turn back, but they will press on in strength. But it won't be their own strength, it will be the strength of the Holy Spirit And they'll do this not for their own glory, but for the glory of King Jesus. Over the last two weeks, Dale and Jason have focused on Paul's sermon. Beginning in verse 13, Paul explained how God's promises to Israel have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. He stressed the importance of Christ's death and resurrection, making it crystal clear that Jesus alone can bring salvation from sin and eternal peace with God. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the sermons from the last three weeks, I would encourage you to do that. This morning, I want you to see the response to Paul's sermon in verses 42 through 52. And as I've already mentioned, as you can see by looking at your Bible, the majority of this chapter records Paul's sermon And even though you've already heard two sermons on it, this sermon is where I want to begin so that we don't forget the content of the message the people are responding to. So just briefly, in verses 17 through 41, we find a gospel declaration. A gospel declaration. Let's look at just a few of these verses. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Now skip to verse 38. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, friends, Jesus bore the curse for sinners. He was the perfect and sufficient substitute. And because Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead in victory, he alone can forgive sins, bringing everlasting freedom to those enslaved to sin. This is good news. Paul not only makes sure his audience understands the identity of Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the promise made long ago, but Paul also makes clear Jesus' ability. In fact, look at two important phrases. First, verse 38. Through this man. And then verse 39. By him. The law of Moses is not the way to God. No one will be forgiven of their sin by keeping a certain set of rules. And no one will find peace with God through their own morality or determined obedience to the law of God. No, every sinner needs Jesus. In fact, listen to Jesus' own words. There can be no confusion here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus adds, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. In fact, you just sang the words of a wonderful song. Come, come, all you pining, hungry, poor, the Savior's bounty taste. Behold a never-failing store for every willing guest. If you're here this morning and you've never turned in faith to Jesus, believing that he is God's son who died in the place of sinners and rose victoriously from the grave, then I would plead with you. I would plead with you to repent and turn to Jesus. Paul declares the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, and how do the people initially respond? Look at verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. There were some who were desperate to hear more about Jesus, and so they begged Paul and Barnabas to return to the synagogue on the following Sabbath to share more about the person and work of Jesus. This is wonderful. Tell us more. It appears that as Paul proclaimed the gospel, some responded in faith. Look at the end of verse 43. One cannot continue in the grace of God unless they have experienced that grace already. So at this point, the response is really encouraging. But, but the next few verses record something far 
different. In verses 44 and 45, we find gospel rejection. Gospel rejection. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Again, it's still good at this point. The next Sabbath rolls around and a massive crowd shows up. And again, remember why they have gathered. Many had heard Paul's sermon several days earlier and wanted more. They want to hear more about Jesus. And apparently, they wanted a lot of their friends and neighbors and others to hear this news as well. Because Luke tells us the whole city gathered. Now, most commentators think that he's being a little hyperbolic in the way he's talking about this. But the point is, a ton of people showed up to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. Again, this all seems like a very good thing, but notice the next verse, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. What's going on here? Why would anyone respond this way to more people gathering to hear the gospel explained? Well, apparently there was a group of religious but unbelieving Jews who responded to this event much like the Sadducees responded to the advancement of the gospel back in chapter 5, where the text says they were filled with jealousy and threw the apostles in prison. It could be, it could be that this group of unbelieving Jews were jealous because of the sheer number of people that showed up to hear Paul teach. Unfortunately, religious leaders, even good ones, sometimes struggle with a sinful sense of pride and competition when it comes to the success of others. But friends, I think something more serious is happening here. Because it's not just that these apostolic opponents are jealous. But their jealousy produces something more. They contradict what Paul is teaching and revile him. This is pretty strong language. In fact, the text actually indicates that in their opposition, they blasphemed against God, perhaps even pronouncing a curse upon the crucified Christ. One commentator suggests, and I think he's correct, that at the heart of this opposition to the gospel, listen carefully to this, is a desire by these Jews to protect their religious and ethnic identity. What they love most is being threatened by the gospel. Religious tradition and ethnic discrimination have blinded these Jews to the beauty of the gospel. This is something for us to think deeply about. It could happen to us. It has happened to those who have gone before us in the same theological stream that we now swim, we've got to be very careful 
these gospel rejectors began actively working in opposition to Paul and Barnabas in an effort to keep those gathered from clearly understanding the message of Jesus Christ. And they're so intentioned their opposition that verse 50, if you skip down to verse 50, it tells us that they organize a rebellion, stir up a new wave of persecution, and ultimately they drive Paul and Barnabas out of the region. This opposition is intense. Now this is a grievous scene, isn't it? A whole bunch of people show up to hear the gospel and those that claim to be religious stand in opposition to this large gathering hearing the gospel. This is a grievous scene. And then they begin to persecute those who are giving their lives for the good of others by engaging in the mission of Jesus. This is a terrible scene. And, and it seems foreign to anything we've experienced. But brothers and sisters, I want to warn us about something. So I want to, want to take a different angle in terms of applying this text. So I, I do think we should consider whether or not our own mindset is drifted into that of the Jews here who are opposing the gospel. But I also want you to think about the opposition that the believers are facing here. And I, and I thought about it while I was going through this text. Why, why is it that we don't face opposition? Some of this is just the Lord's kindness to us. John prayed for our government leaders. We do. We have the freedom to gather and worship like this. That's part of it. But I think there's something deeper we should at least think about. In terms of opposition to the gospel, the world hasn't changed. But I think Christians have. Of course, there are nations spread across the globe that are horrifically persecuting believers. Their opposition to the gospel is more openly violent. But there is a level of gospel boldness that our brothers and sisters in persecuted nations possess that most of us don't even have a category for. I think our gospel boldness, by and large, I think our gospel boldness has been replaced with the comforts of soul-deadening worldliness. I think we probably have lots of opportunities for gospel boldness that we don't even see because our eyes are fixed on the worldly idols that we've decided are more valuable than the glory of God and the souls of men. The early church, though immature, sinful, and struggling, at least lived in a distinctly Christian way with the gospel on their lips people actually knew they were followers of Jesus. I think the biggest problem gospel opponents would face today is figuring out who's actually a Christian. They wouldn't even know who to drive out of town. Maybe the family that leaves their house for two hours, a, a couple of Sundays a month. 
brothers and sisters, our lives should be so profoundly shaped by the gospel. And we should so obviously be living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we should so value the body of Christ that we invite opposition from those who hate the person and the work of Jesus. Now, I didn't say go looking for a fight. I said be so distinctly shaped by the gospel that those who are looking to oppose Christianity have have no problem finding you. A gospel declaration has given way to a gospel rejection. But now Paul and Barnabas boldly respond with an explanation of gospel fulfillment. This is verses 46 and 47. Look at verse 46 with me. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly which seems to be a theme. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Instead of shrinking back in the face of opposition, Paul and Barnabas respond with boldness. They clarified for their Jewish opponents why their jealousy was not only misguided, but it was evil. Paul and Barnabas begin their bold response by affirming their commitment based on God's sovereign design to preach the gospel first to the Jews. As one theologian explains, since the Christian gospel is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, Jews everywhere have a prior right to hear what God has done for them. But, as we have seen throughout Acts, the intense and sustained opposition from the Jews was a signal to Paul and Barnabas to turn to the Gentiles. Now, This did not mean that evangelistic efforts to Jews would cease. But this intense and sustained opposition is now bringing to fulfillment another promised phase of gospel flourishing. The message of the gospel will now go to all people. Even to the very ends of the earth. And we've seen this happening already, haven't we? But this is a pivotal moment. And by quoting Isaiah 49, 7, that's in verse 47 of our text, Paul and Barnabas appeal to the authority of Scripture, and they show how their mission and ministry is being shaped by God's plan, not their own. This is not their idea. This is God's plan. Look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So friends, I want you to hear this carefully. This Old Testament quotation in this place is profoundly important. By employing the words of Isaiah, Paul and Barnabas are showing that their proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles fulfills God's commission to his servant in Isaiah 49. This Servant was expected to restore Israel 
Return the exiles to the land of Israel and bring salvation to the nations. Now, who is the servant in Isaiah? In Isaiah? It's Jesus. Jesus was the, the obedient son that Israel failed to be. God desired for Israel to walk in obedience to him, and in so doing, they would be a light to the nations. Israel failed in this. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And now, standing before the hostile Jews, Paul and Barnabas announced that because they are in Christ and commissioned by Christ, the mission of the servant in Isaiah is now their mission. And Redeemer, because Paul and Barnabas obediently carried out the mission of the servant to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, over time and through the obedience of thousands of additional witnesses, the gospel reached the shores of this nation. In other words, it is the fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 6 that ultimately led to you and me hearing the gospel and believing by faith. This is astounding. In fact, this advance of the gospel, the fulfillment of the servant's mission, it picks up steam right away, which is just a great reminder. Nothing can stop it. But I hope that's one of the things you thought as you watched Jesus in Athens. Nothing can stop God. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. started with gospel declaration, which led to gospel rejection, which demanded an explanation of gospel fulfillment. Finally, we see gospel advancement. This is found in verses 48 through 52. Look at verse 48 with me. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. When I was going over this this week, I read that verse, and in the moment of reading it, the Holy Spirit just brought so much joy at the reality of this verse, and I walked over to Jason Harrison's office and entered without even knocking, and I said, I think, I think this verse is the key verse in the whole book. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As you can imagine, when the gathered Gentiles heard the words of Paul and Barnabas and realized their significance, they rejoiced. They weren't on the outside looking in. Because of Jesus, they could be forgiven and find peace with God, being fully incorporated into the family of God. Like the Gentiles in verse 48, the reality of the gospel, brothers and sisters, should produce ever-deepening joy in all of us. 
Our redemption, our redemption is entirely the work of God through Jesus Christ. In fact, that phrase at the end of verse 48, describing those who believe and eternally belong to Jesus, the text says they have been appointed to eternal life. Oh, the rich meaning of that word we have translated as appointed is this, to assign someone to a certain classification or to be classed among those possessing. Oh, that's really good. That ought to be thrilling. That ought to be thrilling to you, Christian friend. All who are in Christ, made new by the Spirit, held eternally and securely in the Father's hand, all who believe do so because of God's sovereign, unmerited, irresistible, overcoming grace. That's why I love gathering on Sundays. I love singing about that grace. I hope it never gets old. I hope you never become callous to the truth of God's sovereign grace. I hope you never begin to embrace the lie that that you had something to do with your redemption or that God redeemed you because of something he saw in you. Well, brothers and sisters, I pray that this church consists of people who are freshly amazed by God's sovereign grace every day and every week. As we close, I want, I want you to see a frightening contrast in the text. Look again at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, They begin rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. One group thrust aside the word of God. And they are described as unworthy of eternal life. While the other group glorified the word of the Lord and were appointed to eternal life. Beyond ethnicities and nations and people groups, there are only two kinds of people. Those who receive the word of the Lord, the gospel, by faith, and those who thrust it aside. Those who receive it will live forever. And those who reject it will be damned. If you're here this morning, I just want to, again, plead with you to consider where you fit 
within those two groups? Have you spent your life thrusting off the instruction of God's word, pushing the gospel away, Scripture would warn you that is the height of foolishness. Turn in humility today and receive the word of God. Receive the gospel. Look at verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And then I mentioned this earlier, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Verse 51. But they, speaking primarily of Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet. This is, a, this is sort of a startling text. This act of shaking the dust off their feet signified that Paul and Barnabas had done what they could and the gospel opposing Jews would now be left in their rebellion. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, which is a, a strange ending, isn't it? After what has taken place here, they... They shake the, the dust off their feet. This is a, a horrible act. Yet, it was right for them to do this. But they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's where I want to leave you this morning. A life spent on mission for Jesus will not be a life void of suffering, opposition, and difficulty. But a life spent on mission for Jesus will be marked by the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit and the consistent presence of spiritual joy. So what do you want? Comfort, Ease. Brothers and sisters, when, when, I, when I am calling you away from the pursuit of worldly treasures and temporal comforts, I am not standing in opposition to your pursuit of joy. But I am warning you not to spend your life pursuing a lesser joy a joy that is fleeting. I want to urge you to pursue greater, fuller, more satisfying joy, a joy that transcends circumstances and relationships and possessions. That's why the disciples were filled with joy. I want you to pour out your life in the service of Jesus in the sharing of his glorious gospel, in making much of Christ through every available means. 
I want you, brothers and sisters, to pursue joy in Jesus through engaging in his mission. If you have been appointed to life, then you have also been called to mission. If you have been appointed to life, then you have also been called to mission for the glory of Christ and for your ever-increasing joy in him. Let's pray.